Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit, and it's COVID Day 17 for me. Thank you for tuning in. As you can hear, um, I'm almost better. 17 days, I've tested negative, but I've still got some of the symptoms, believe it or not. And this is after getting three vaccinations, the two Pfizer's and then the booster. I'm still tired a bit. I'm congested a lot. I'm sneezing. I'm, I'm definitely not 100%. And again, I'm not anti-vaxxer, and as I said, I've received uh, the vaccinations, but you can't really be serious if you think that the government, the drug companies, Fauci, didn't lie to us about the vaccine, either purposely or they claimed that this was uh, a fail-safe, and it certainly wasn't. And the vaccine may help. Uh, it certainly may have made COVID easier for me. I have no you know, doubt that that's possible, but it, it didn't do what we were told it would do, which would be preventing us from getting COVID. So what I would just say is, and I'm, this is not something I usually would say, is you need to have a little more patience and understanding when people tell you that they don't trust the government regarding this and don't want the vaccine because we were lied to. And again, you know, I'm all for vaccinations, but it's hard to really uh, overlook what happened to us with this COVID vaccine. Now, let me talk about something completely different. This is a case. I want to go into a legal case, and this is an important one to me. I talked about it a bit in a prior podcast, the case of Kari Nordlinger. He was the young man that was charged with manslaughter in New Jersey in uh, February of 2016 in Edgewater, which is in Bergen County, New Jersey. And uh, Kari's mom, Rachel is uh, is a lightning rod of sorts. She was the chief of staff to New York City Mayor de Blasio's wife. That's somewhat of what made her a lightning rod, but she was also the right hand of Al Sharpton. And we all know who he is, a controversial figure. I consider him a friend. I consider Rachel a great friend. She actually resigned her post with the mayor's wife a year before her son was charged with manslaughter in New Jersey due to other family issues that naturally had to become hugely amplified because of who she is. And as I said, uh, she's a real friend, someone I've known for decades, and one is, is one of the few people that I've met in my career who I genuinely trust. And I don't say that lightly because I don't trust hardly anybody that I've met in this career for the most part. It's a backstabbing profession. You've got prosecutors that aren't looking out for you, judges, clients, etc. So, as I said, she's as solid as a friend as I have. And when she called me that early morning of uh, February 1, 2016, to tell me that Carrie had been arrested for this very serious manslaughter charge, I got right on it. She explained that Carrie had left the apartment the night before to meet some people downstairs when he got there he was attacked by three of them and during the attack he used a knife and stabbed one a 16 year old that ended up being in the leg who later died at the hospital due to an artery being severed now he was charged with manslaughter presumably because he had no right to use deadly force when he was simply being punched and kicked by three others you know that in and of itself is a little bit questionable if you're getting the crap kicked out of you while you're on the ground by three people, do you have the right to use uh, a knife to respond to three sets of fists and feet? But that's not what happened. Uh, the, the two assailants uh, ended up who survived were charged with the violent robbery of Kari, and the two others who drove them there 
The three, one of them being dead, were also charged. When I got to court in New Jersey, I first went to see Kari in the lockup downstairs. He was 19 at the time, still a kid. And when I made my way back to see him and we caught eyes, it was emotional. I had known him for years and and knew his story. Uh, Obviously, Rachel uh, was a single mother. She raised him from the start, from the very start on her own. And it's not easy. Um, And he certainly had his shares of ups and downs as a young man. Nothing major, but raising a son alone when you have to work all the time to support yourself and your kid in, in very demanding jobs, it isn't easy. It wasn't easy for Rachel. Uh, Kari had no father in his life at all. And as I said, there were, you know, there were real stumbles along the way. But nothing, again, that was really major. He was just a kid that was growing up without a father. And he was scared that day. I mean, I saw uh, fear in his eyes. He knew, and I, and I see this a lot, but it's painful to see it in a young kid. He knew he was facing a long time in prison. And he told me that he had gone downstairs the night before to meet a few people outside of his apartment and he got hit from behind and he was attacked. He said he was being beaten with multiple objects by three people. And really in his mind to save his life, he pulled out a knife and he just flailed and hit one of them in the leg while he was on the ground being you know, beaten. And, and as he said to me, he was beaten with objects. He, they ended up running off the three he got up, went back to his apartment. He found out later when he was arrested that the boy that got, had gotten stabbed in the leg later bled to death and died. And I believed Carrie when he told me this, and I asked him point blank, and this was crucially important. I don't know if he remembers this, but it was the only thing that I was really concerned about at that point. Are you sure they had weapons? And that's crucial. Are you sure you were being beaten with weapons? And he was certain. He said there was a bat, there was a knife, and there was a machete machete, which is, you know, not the kind of thing that you would forget when you see it coming down on you. He was certain. And this was hugely important because the law on use of force as a self-defense in New Jersey is clear. And I'm going to read it to you. When a person is in imminent danger of bodily harm, the person has the right to use force or even deadly force when that force is necessary to prevent the use against him of unlawful force. Now, Deadly force may only be used in self-defense if it's reasonably believed that such deadly force is necessary to protect the actor from death or serious bodily harm. And under New Jersey law, serious bodily harm is defined as injury that creates a substantial risk of death, serious permanent disfigurement, or a protracted loss or impairment of the function of any bodily member or organ. So basically, if you think you're either going to be killed or very badly injured, and I'm talking not just with fists and feet, you can pull out a knife and stab someone and and you're not going to get convicted. You shouldn't even get indicted uh, for what occurs next. So to me, it sounded pretty cut and dry. This was a perfect case of self-defense. And I was shocked, frankly, charging Kari with manslaughter made no sense. It just didn't make any sense. I was just surprised. But this was Bergen County, New Jersey, not exactly a place with a reputation for fairness in applying the law. Certainly not, especially against black kids. I mean, it's Bergen counties are mostly a rich white suburb of New York City, and they're not exactly fair in my mind, in my experience, with minorities. They've got a reputation as a dirty office for good reason. 
Now, bail was set before I even got there. They have a, the way it works in New Jersey. Bail was set at $500,000 before I even got in front of a judge. And then I came into the case and immediately we made a bail reduction argument. We submitted papers and I got the bail reduced to 300000 in front of a judge. And that's important because every dollar that you get down is less money that someone has to post. Now, you don't have to post all of it, but you got to hire a bondsman. You got to pay a percentage and a percentage of 500000 is more than a percentage of 300000 So the lower you get it, the cheaper it is for the person who needs to post the bail, which was Rachel. It was still too much in my mind considering the facts of the case, though. And the prosecutor claimed in court that Kari was a, a violent drug dealer and just ignored the fact that he was being beaten by three other people and that there were two others in a car nearby, all with the idea of robbing him with weapons. And the prosecutor acknowledged that a baseball bat was used against Kari. She acknowledged that during the argument. I argued what Kari had told me, that there was a machete there too, which he was being struck with. And the prosecutor was lying by not mentioning that and the, the knife that was also in the hands of one of his attackers. And this was obviously crucial to our self-defense claim. It was very early. It was the first day of the case. The judge agreed that the case was no slam dunk for the government. And I'm quoting from the transcript from that first appearance. That they came with weapons, that does raise questions of the likelihood of a conviction, the judge said, noting that there was evidence that Kari was defending himself. Now, if you look at the New York Daily News on that very day, two days after the arrest, when I got the bail lowered, you'll read my comments to the press as I was certain that the case was overcharged. Now, I hadn't even read the grand jury minutes. I hadn't even seen any of the evidence in the case, but I knew that, that Kari was telling me the truth and I knew the law of self-defense. And I knew that whatever happened that led to that case being charged the way it was, that something was wrong. And this is what I said that was in the daily news. A reasonable person getting beaten with a baseball bat is going to react in a way to save his life, Lickman said Wednesday. But the prosecutor didn't say that he was beaten to the ground with a machete and a baseball bat. It was a lie of omission. They overcharged my client and they are going to pay, Blickman said. Now, I can, if I had a dollar for every time a prosecutor smirked when I said something like that at the beginning of a case, and if I had a million dollars every time I ended up getting a case dismissed or an acquittal, well, I'd be all right. Eh, actually, I'd be right where I am now. Anyway, I was confident from the start in this case. It was interesting to me, though, why would the Bergen County Prosecutor's Office take the side of a 16-year-old kid, the one who was killed, who started the attack, who was beating Kari, who he himself had just gotten out of jail just months before he tried to rob Kari and, and, and beat him. He was arrested for holding a 15-year-old girl in the woods against her will and then led police on a chase before being arrested. This boy had a history of harassing the girl. She had obtained a restraining order against him. During the 90 minutes he had kidnapped her, he had beaten her, beaten the crap out of her. He had recently gotten out of jail for that incident when he attacked Carrie and with his friends. And this is what the, the Bergen County DA's office was protecting? But the prosecutor handling uh, Kari's case was the same one who just months after charging Kari had another manslaughter charge tossed when a judge found, quote, extremely exculpatory evidence that was obtained in the search of the victim's death was not handed over for two years and that it squarely negates the manslaughter charge. So I knew 
pretty early on in this case that I had a prosecutor who I felt was crooked. I just felt it. That's not the kind of stuff that happens. You do that once, you should be fired. You're holding back evidence. You should be fired. Now, I don't care if it's purposeful or if it's negligence. You're dealing with someone's life when you're a prosecutor. And if you're too fucking incompetent to handle the job, you need to go. Period. End the story. That's it. And getting discovery from the Bergen County Prosecutor's Office was like impossible. And going along with the case where the manslaughter charge had been dropped. They just never turned it all over. There were police reports, handwritten notes from uh, law enforcement. There were police logs, notebooks, the crime scene log from the police department, diagrams from medical examiner's office and and, uh, recordings, statements made by witnesses in the case who were identified but were never provided. There were subpoena returns that we were missing from the telephones uh, of the victim and his co-conspirators and other phones. We were getting the subpoenas that were turned over, but not what was returned pursuant to the subpoenas. It was totally bizarre. Uh, Photos of items from the house of the victim's mother, we kept asking, and the prosecutor kept stalling. But in the meantime, we didn't just sit and wait for the prosecutor to do her job. And that was really the least of the prosecutor's problems. We received the grand jury minutes, which consisted of simply this. The prosecutor, Danielle Grutenbohr, and one single witness, which was the case agent, a detective named James Costello. He provided all of the evidence to the grand jury, which indicted Kari. Now, I was really curious how he could be indicted. How could a grand jury, a group of people, indict him for manslaughter when they had a video of him being beaten when the stabbing occurred? Now, I'll get to the video in a second. I mean, again, I was shocked. It just seemed like he had a pretty good self-defense claim. Why would they ignore the fact that he was getting the crap beaten out of him with objects when, uh, and they could see it with their own eyes when he used the knife? And as I said, we had a video of the whole incident. It was grainy from a security camera at a nearby school, but the attack was, was pretty clear. You could see it. So in the grand jury testimony, Grudenborg started by asking Costello at the beginning what he had reviewed in preparation for his testimony. Costello said he was the lead detective on the case and he had the quote opportunity to review reports made by others in connection with the case and had reviewed applications for search warrants and communication data warrants that other detectives in the office have made in connection with the case. In short, he had seen every piece of paper connected to the case. And then they started the grand jury by showing the video of the attack. And again, it was pretty clear that there were three guys beating the crap out of Kari with weapons. We had Kari's uncle slow down. He was, this is uh, what he was capable of doing. And this was a godsend. He slowed down the video. He enlarged it. He got rid of some of the, the blurriness. And wouldn't you know it? All three of the attackers had a weapon. There was a long cylindrical object. There was a flat knife long one, i.e. the machete, and then there was a knife. And how did we know it was a knife? Because at one point, it was dropped. There was a knife that was dropped during the attack, and one of the attackers picked it up before he ran away. But the prosecutor, for some reason, didn't blow up that video, didn't make it less blurry, just tossed it in there, grainy, and probably showed it on a small TV. I don't know. But the prosecutor kept hammering home that it was just one of the attackers, attackers who had a weapon, And it was a long cylindrical object. And I'm going to read some quotes from the grand jury. Grudenborg, 
but if you could explain what the actions are that we see of each of the three individuals as shown that the video shows. Costello. They're punching, kicking. It appears that they have a baton of some sort. Grutenbohr. Long, cylindrical object. Costello. They're hitting him with it. Grutenbohr. Now, can you tell how many of the three have a long, cylindrical object based on the video? Costello. I can only confirm one. And the grand jurors saw through this at times, and they they kept on being told that there was just one weapon involved, which forced the jury to the conclusion that Kari's use of a knife in defending himself was overkill and therefore illegal. And I want to read some of this. Juror number seven. So even though he didn't think he was going to kill him, perhaps the force was disproportionate. disproportionate. He used a knife versus a fist or feet. Grutenborg. Your observation based on the evidence is Kari Nordlinger possessed a knife. That's from the evidence. That's from the autopsy result, the totality of the evidence and the search warrant execution and the, uh, and the video speaks for itself. And you saw individuals in the video that were armed with a long cylindrical. You saw that the video speaks for itself. You already saw it. If you want to see it again, we can play it again. Now the video is still running. Can we tell from looking, and she's directing this question to Costello, can we tell from looking at that portion that began at 1039-24, and again, we're talking about the video, can you tell how many cylindrical objects were used with the three individuals? Costello, I believe I only saw one. Grutenborg, okay, so the video was there. It's all there for you. Now, sometimes she slipped up and mentioned bats or objects, plural, instead of one, and the grand jury caught it. And then she would just fix it. Juror number 19, just to clarify, you used a couple of times, you've used plural bats. Was there evidence of more than one or Costello, not to my knowledge? Juror number 19, okay. Grudenborg, okay, you didn't see, uh, you didn't see from the video or anything? Costello, I believe there was one. I mean, that's all I could actually identify. The grand jury was thinking that there might have been more weapons. She kept saying plural. They could see perhaps more than one weapon being used on Kari. And Grutenborg and Costello kept bringing it back to one and not a knife, not a machete. Why? Because they wanted to negate the excuse for Kari to use deadly force that was being used against them. How sick is this? Now, another time, juror number 19, Bats was said a couple of times, and I just want to Grutenborg. Any other questions? Yes, she ignored the question. This juror number 19 asked about bats, plural. But then another grand juror piped in, juror number nine. So there were two people, one person on the video. How many weapons, like bats or other weapons, how many, whether a bat or what did they have? Grutenborg. Might I suggest it would again be the totality of the investigation, which would include results of crime searches crime scene searches, interviews that you were able to conduct. She's talking to Costello. And the video. Perhaps might I suggest, you don't have to take my suggestion, but might I suggest that we watch the portion of the video again while Detective Costello was here, and you can all look at it again. Maybe that would be helpful. Juror number nine. Yes, ma'am. Grutenborg. Okay, it starts around 10.39.24. And then Grutenborg plays it again, and she asks Costello how many cylindrical how many can you see? Costello, I only believe I saw one. The grand jurors wouldn't stop, though. They could see with their own eyes that 
the victim who was hit with the with the knife by Corey was also carrying a weapon. Juror number two, there was no conversation about Nordlinger and another weapon that he might have had in the Grutenborg. Who's the he? Just so we're clear. Juror number two, the gentleman that's deceased. Costello, no, there was no talking about it. Grutenborg, did anybody indicate during the course of this investigation that the victim had a weapon that night? Costello, no. But it was not just a videotape of the attack that makes plainly clear that all three attackers had weapons and two of them had knives. It's not just the weapon, excuse me, it's not just the video that Grudenborg and Costello were trying to pass off as just one long cylindrical object being used against Kari. There was other evidence that was reviewed by both of them prior to the grand jury testimony, evidence they had access to for months. Costello acknowledged during his grand jury testimony that one of the attackers that had stayed in the car, okay, not actually there, not one of the three that was beating Kari, but one of the two that was in the, the car that was, had driven them there, he was interviewed upon his arrest by other detectives from the Bergen County Prosecutor's Office. And this other co-conspirator, I'll call him, was a fellow named Richard Jean-Pierre. And Costello provided detail in the grand jury testimony of Mr. Jean-Pierre's videotape statement. He gave that information to the grand jurors, and he explained that Jean-Pierre described how the victim had called him that afternoon and asked him to drive him to see Kari to collect money that Kari supposedly owed him. Every detail of what the victim told this Richard Jean-Pierre, Costello discussed to the grand jury. It was all in, in a police interview report as well, and obviously the, the video interrogation that was done on Jean-Pierre. And Costello clearly knew it well, and as he had said at the beginning of the grand jury presentation, I've seen everything in the file. Yet somehow, despite testifying to all these details that were contained in Jean-Pierre's videotape statement after the death of the victim, Costello neglected to mention to the grand jury the most important fact of all that Richard Jean-Pierre stated during that interrogation, that the victim brought a knife to the encounter with Kari, and that the victim and another one of the three attackers possessed knives that night. And this is from the interrogation interview of Richard Jean-Pierre. Detectives, who had weapons with them, and what kind of weapons did they have? Jean-Pierre, the only ones who had weapons was Savion, that was the victim, and Lubin, that was one of the attackers. And they had knives, the detective asked? Jean-Pierre, yes. And that didn't even include the long cylindrical object that we could see clearly from the video. So there you've got it. You've got two knives and you've got the long cylindrical bat-like object. All of that was given and read to by Costello and Grutenborg, but when they had the grand jury... They squashed it, and he, he perjured himself. It's against the law, Costello, testifying that none of the three attackers possessed a knife, and then only one of them even had a long cylindrical object. And he said that the victim had nothing. That's perjury. That's a, that's a crime. And it's even worse, because it's by a cop who swears to protect. This guy didn't. He lied. He committed a crime. And it was clearly designed, this testimony to convince the grand jury that Kari had no reason to defend himself with his own knife because, after all, only one bat was being used against him, and the man who ultimately was stabbed to death 
Vicari was defenseless, according to Costello. In addition, the prosecutor spent eight pages of grand jury testimony of the transcript questioning the detective about the debriefings of Jean-Pierre, and many of her questions were leading, which means she knew what was in that confession, that interrogation. But somehow she was careful to avoid asking questions about the part of the videotaped interrogation of Richard Jean-Pierre, which indicated that multiple knives were used against Kari during the attack. But there was more evidence which proved that multiple knives were used against him and that the evidence was purposely kept away from the grand jury. Detective Costello testified that after the attack, the attackers went to the victim's mother's house to alert her that her son had been stabbed and he was in the hospital. Costello discussed the interview of the victim's mother, who was interviewed by other detectives from his office after the attack. And then she was also videotaped a month later. So they had two interviews of her. And in her interview, she mentioned that the attackers, I'm going to call them that. She didn't know what they were at the time, but they dropped off a bunch of stuff at her house, clothing, bloody shoes, keys, cell phones, credit cards. But somehow neither Grutenborg, the prosecutor, nor Detective Costello mentioned to the grand jury that the one other thing that was dropped off to the victim's mother's house, which she recounted in her interviews to that office's detectives, a bloody kitchen knife that one of the attackers left there, which she turned over the next day to the detectives. Bizarre, huh? Now, not only was the existence of this knife kept from the grand jury, but the detectives never tested it forensically to see whose blood was on the knife. And this is important. Preventing the grand jury from hearing about this knife clearly, again, was designed to convince the panel that Kari was not facing a threat to the degree that legally permitted him to use his own knife to defend himself during the attack. In addition, the grand jury could have determined that the bloody knife that was dropped by one of the attackers, it was in the video. There was a, a, a knife that was dropped on the ground by one of them, and, and one of them picked it up and, and grabbed it before he fled. That could have been the one that was used to stab the victim. You know, you couldn't see Kari plunge the knife into anybody. It was all so quick. So how do we know that it wasn't somebody who was holding that bloody knife that was dropped off at the victim's house? How do we know that knife wasn't the one that stabbed the victim and he died? But guess what? The grand jury never got the chance uh, to even learn about that, and they didn't even forensically test it to find out whose blood it was. They just left it in a bag. Why? You know why. Because they didn't want to know the truth. And like they say in a game show or in a commercial, which were selling uh, Ginsu knives, but there's more. Costello made clear at the beginning of his testimony that he had the opportunity to review all the investigative materials in the case, including all the search warrant materials. And I'm going to read the question and answer that was read during the grand jury testimony at the beginning. Grutenborg. You've had the opportunity to review applications for search warrants and something known as communication data warrants that other detectives in the office have made in connection with this case, correct? Costello, yes, that is correct. Yet while Costello repeatedly claimed under oath that only one weapon was used by the attackers on Kari, and it was specifically not a knife, Costello neglected to mention that the affidavits which were supporting the search warrant and the communication data warrant that he had reviewed prior to his testimony that another detective 
from the Bergen County Prosecutor's Office had signed the, uh, the application for the search warrants. They wanted to look at Kari's home. They wanted to go into the car that was used by the attackers. And then there was a detective that signed an affidavit in support of this communication data warrant. That was to get to the phones that were used by the attackers and Kari. In the, that affidavit, in those affidavits, in support of probable cause to get the search warrants, it said that the following the arrests of the attackers, they were armed with knives. It said it in there. In order to get the search warrants for all these materials, all these, the houses, the phones, the car, he wrote that the attackers were armed with knives, but somehow neither Costello nor Grudenborg let it get to the grand jury. But there's more. Beyond lying to the grand jury about the number and type of weapons used by the attackers against Corey, Costello downplayed the injuries that were received by Corey. You can imagine you're getting the shit kicked out of you on the ground by three people. They're kicking you, they're punching you, they've got bats, they've got knives. And he tried to convince the grand jury that Kari had no viable self-defense claim. He was in no danger during the attack because he didn't have any injuries. Now, Grudenborg was clearly in on this because she was asking the leading questions to Costello, trying to get that out, that Kari was not injured during this attack. Therefore, he had no reason to use the knife. And after... Uh, witnessing the uh, attack video, the grand juries were concerned about the injuries that he may have suffered, Kari. And here's the back and forth. Grudenborg, now we, someone asked earlier about whether or not Kari Nordlinger had any injuries. First and foremost, did he have any stab wounds? Costello, no. Grudenborg, did he have any injuries of any kind? Costello, no. We did a full body stand-up of photographs and inspection. He had no visible injuries whatsoever. Grudenborg, so you didn't see any bruising on any part of his body? Costello, no bruising, no scrapes, no cuts. Grudenborg, and is there any indication that before he came back to the prosecutor's office that he had sought medical attention in any way? Costello, no. Grudenborg, and in fact, at one point, while he was in the prosecutor's office, did you or the other detectives observe him doing calisthenics? Costello, yes. Grudenborg, jumping jacks, push-ups? Costello, yes, he was doing push-ups, sit-ups in the jail cell. Grutenborg, at any time he was in the prosecutor's office, did he complain of pain? Did he ask for a Tylenol or an Advil or anything like that? Costello, no, not at all. She's asking the leading questions. She knows the answers because she's read the file. Obviously, she's the prosecutor. Costello's read the file. He knows if there were any injuries. Of course, however, the full-body stand-up of photographs and inspection that Costello testified that we did, it actually did show massive bruising on Kari's body. Such significant bruising that the photographer, when he was taking pictures of Kari's body, he included a ruler on his body to demonstrate the length of the bruises. So we had no idea. Look at a body, it's got bruises. They actually put a ruler underneath the bruises so we would get an idea that the viewer of the photo would get an idea as to how long the bruises were. And yet Costello and Grutenborg claimed that there were pictures taken of Kari and there was no marks on him at all. This was all done. Clearly, this blatant perjury, the supporting of it by the prosecutor, all with the goal of negating any claim that Kari exercised the legal right 
to self-defense as he was being beaten by three armed attackers. And the grand jury wouldn't be deterred because they couldn't believe how could it be that a guy getting the crap kicked out of him wasn't injured at all? Juror number seven. So even though he didn't think he was going to kill him, perhaps the force was disproportionate. He used the knife versus a fist, etc. cetera. Grutenborg, no. Your observation based on the evidence is Kari Nordlinger possessed the knife. That's from the evidence. That's from the autopsy result, the totality of the evidence. Juror number seven. Was Mr. Nordlinger ever struck with the cylindrical item, Grutenborg? I'll bring out Detective Costello to answer that. Grutenborg, Detective Costello, one of the questions that the grand jurors has, is there from the totality investigation, was there an indication that Kari Nordlinger was struck by the cylindrical object or bat that we saw in the video? Costello, it appears to be, but we don't know definitively. We didn't speak to him. There was no signs of injury, or I can't say that definitively that he was struck. It's just a lie. And grand juror number 20 didn't buy Costello's claim that Kari wasn't injured during the attack. And he followed up with this question. Detective, did you say that you did look at the physical review of Mr. Nordlinger and he had no bodily bruises or Costello interrupted him? No cuts, no bruises, no complaint of pain. Juror number 20. And he was able to do exercise in his cell? Costello doing push-ups, sit-ups. Incredibly, not only did Costello lie about the lack of bruising on Kari's body after the attack, but he also doubled down and attempted to convince the grand jury that Kari was in such good shape after getting the crap beaten out of him that he was doing push-ups and sit-ups in his cell. We finally, you know, we kept on waiting for the full discovery, and that, and that was my call, to wait for the discovery to see if they were going to clean up their mess. We finally couldn't take it anymore, and we brought it to the court, noting that the video showed that there were multiple weapons used to attack Kari, and that all the lies about the weapons that were kept in the grand jury in connection with the charge of manslaughter. And the judge got pissed at that point, and he ordered the prosecutor and the detective to explain in an affidavit why they neglected to mention the weapons, why they seemingly ignored all the interviews of the attackers, which contained mention that the attackers had multiple knives, which they used to attack Kari. We then decided at that point, we now had leverage. We had a very angry judge, a Judge Kaslau from uh, Bergen County, who was, was wonderful. And we insisted to meet with the head of the Bergen County Prosecutor's Office and his first assistant. The head of the office was a former federal prosecutor named Gerbeer Grewal, who I had always felt was a, a very solid, honest guy. Uh, he actually had dismissed a federal case that I had with him when he was a federal prosecutor in Brooklyn. And now he was in New Jersey and he was the head of this uh, Bergen County prosecutor's office. And we met with him, me and my co-counsel, a fellow named Lee Vartan, who is a New Jersey lawyer and is absolutely fantastic. He just was fantastic. And he and I met with uh, Gerbeer and we showed the video and we explained the prosecutor's lies and we explained the perjury. And he immediately agreed to dismiss the manslaughter charge, which with all respect, you know, big deal that was going to happen anyway. He also told us that his office was wrong in labeling Kari a drug dealer to the public, which naturally, if you Google Kari's name, you're going to find out that he's a drug dealer based on, you know, these uh, 17 or 19 months, whatever it was of lies by this office. He was slandered by a crooked prosecutor and a crooked detective. But Gerbeer never gave Grutenborg any real discipline. And he allowed her and the crooked detective to continue harming innocent people 
in that county. And let me tell you, these were crimes. Whatever Kari was accused of doing, having a prosecutor and a detective lie under oath, suborning the perjury, they should have been arrested. They should have been put in chains. The prosecutor should have been disbarred. They should have spent time in jail. The detective should have had his badge taken away. He's a criminal. These are criminals. And I'm saying this publicly. So this is, this is slander if I'm wrong. I'm not wrong. They won't sue me. This is slander if I'm wrong. I'm not wrong. They're both criminals. They both suborn perjury. And by leaving them on, by Gerbeer leaving them on and fighting us about the fact whether or not they had committed perjury, it just causes the public to lose trust in, in the head of, of, of this prosecutor's office, in, in the office completely. He allowed his underlings to frame an innocent man. So what happened to Gerbeer? This Eastern Indian, Indian, he's a Sikh. Naturally, he was promoted to the position of New Jersey Attorney General. He was the leading law enforcement uh, officer in the state. His office framed an innocent man. And he got promoted right after this. Why? Because he's a minority. And that's what matters most in liberal states. Not competence, not honesty in doing the job, not in not framing innocent people. It's a disgrace. But this is the liberal mindset everywhere. Diversity is more important than truth and justice. That's all that matters is diversity. That's what's best for the public. Not prosecutors who allow their underlings to frame innocent people and don't even punish them. What did she get? Did she, uh, she lost her parking privileges for a month? She's still working there. God knows who else she's framed. She's done it in the past. She did it with us. For her part, Grudenborg tried to avoid answering the judge's order. The judge ordered she and Costello to explain why they neglected to mention the weapons to the grand jury, why they ignored all the interviews of the attackers, which contained mention that the attackers had multiple knives with them when they attacked Kari. The judge ordered her and Costello to do so, and despite both Grutenbohr and Costello going on for page after page about the interrogation of, of Richard Jean-Pierre, they both finally claimed, when they were forced to, that they had never watched the video or read the transcript. And I'm talking the video of the interrogation of Richard Jean-Pierre. I'm talking about the transcript of it. Yet somehow they went back and forth in the grand jury in excruciating detail of everything that was in that interrogation video. But they claimed that they never saw it. It was just a lie, another lie. Both of them. They should be arrested. They should be convicted. They should be jailed. Period period. And after nearly two years, Kari Nordlinger got his life back. <clears throat> he was labeled a violent drug dealer, killer, by the Bergen County Prosecutor's Office for 19 months it was. But he was fully vindicated. And Rachel, his mom, who was a close friend of mine, as I said, to see the relief from her was such a gift to me. Because you don't always like all your clients and you still do your best for them regardless of how you feel about them. But you do so well, to do so well for a client that you know personally and you really care about, well, there's really nothing that beats that. And that's why we do this kind of work. You're beating back forces that most people can't possibly even begin to fight. 
or even figure out how to fight. The little man is buried under tons of concrete, and one man can make a difference in someone's life. And we did with Kari Nordlinger. We did with Rachel Nordlinger. Now, I'm hoping, um, I'm going to get or ask, and I hope that they'll do it, Kari and Rachel to uh, come on and, and do an interview with me about what happened. I talk about it like it's, you know, matter of fact, <clears throat> but emotionally it was brutal. It was the worst ever for them, month after month after month, till we finally got it all dismissed. Just disgraceful. And Corey's got his life back, and, and Rachel's moved on to bigger and better, and all's well that ends well, but not really. Because as I said, the criminals who did all this, who framed this innocent kid, they're still prosecuting. They're still enforcing the law on their own perverted method. That's what they're doing. They're still out there. Now I'm going to take a break, and I'll be back in a second after I finish choking remnants of my COVID, and we'll talk about a little bit about what's going on in the world. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Joe Biden fell off his bike over the weekend when he wasn't moving. He fell off his bicycle when he wasn't moving. Now, he's 79 years old, I believe. Is that what he is? Something like that. 75, 79, 112. Maybe it's time for his handlers to stop pretending he's some hardy, hale, active man and stop making him do physical stuff. He can barely form a coherent sense as it is. No one is fooled about what he's able to do physically. He's plunged America into a recession. Inflation is at a 40-year high. He's created supply chain issues, which he can't seem to solve. I mean, we've been hearing about this for, you know, since he came into office, he can't seem to solve them, perhaps because the transportation secretary that he named has no experience in this kind of job, and he never goes to work because he's either breastfeeding his two uh, boys, his twin boys that he had with his husband, or he's getting COVID and proudly refusing to come to work until everybody's safe. But that's okay. He's gay. He's 90% a communist. That's all that matters with Pete Buttgug. The baby formula shortage is not getting any better at all. Gas is six bucks a gallon, and Biden's blaming Putin, not his shitty, shitty energy policies, <clears throat> which include his promise to destroy the oil industry, as he himself said before he got elected. And we're supposed to care that this decrepit piece of shit, who has two kids that are both crackheads and both sex addicts, and they can't seem to keep tabs on their laptops and their diaries. His daughter claimed that her diary, that, that in her diary, that Biden showered with her for too long. And that's what turned her into a sex addict. We're supposed to care that he can sort of ride a bike for a few feet until he crashes onto his face. Listen to me. Let me just, it's Father's Day. I'm recording this on Father's Day. You have to be some kind of shitty father to have two kids that are as fucked up as Hunter and Ashley Biden. Two kids that are both drug addicts and sex addicts and have both been institutionalized repeatedly for both? Maybe it's not them, sir. Maybe it's you? Anyway, Americans are getting destroyed, and this is what the administration thinks we need. Joe Biden on a fucking bicycle? And drag queens. The administration thinks we need drag queens in kids' classrooms. But as hilariously pathetic 
as that was, watching Joe Biden uh, fall off his bike as he was not moving. Um, how about the prospect of that cackling imbecile Kamala Harris moving into the big boy seat? I mean, talk about a chill up your spine. <clears throat> now, granted, Biden isn't in any way actually governing at this point. He's too out of it, and he's being led around by the nose by his far-left uh, administration. But at least publicly to the outside world, he's maybe a, a slight notch better than that moron Harris, who's just an affirmative, affirmative action abortion to the like 80 millionth degree. I mean, what is her excuse that she can't form a complete sentence? I mean, she's not a hundred years old. She's just a moron. Now talking about morons, I'm going to segue to Eric Adams, the mayor of New York city. This guy loves drag Queens in the classroom. There has been this bizarre insidious thing going on in American classrooms across the country lately. I don't know if you're watching. First, it was critical race theory that everybody complained about. And I think the far left figured, you know what? We're going to do something so utterly bonkers that is so much worse than critical race theory that you'll be begging us to just have critical race theory and stop this other crazy shit. Now, I'm not talking again about critical race theory, which is bad enough, basically, that everybody's born, every white person's born as a racist. You're bad, you're evil, you, you know, you're a racist. But I'm talking about drag queens. In the classroom, this is so utterly insane to me to think that this is a hill that the left wants to die on. They have to know that the majority of Americans hate this, that they think it's crazy. They have to know that, that even moderates don't want their kids exposed to half-naked men dressed as women with, with floppy fake tits prancing around a classroom. They know it. But as I said, they're floating a trial balloon. They want to see how much they can get away with. And as typical of Americans that are normal, we're too busy working to spend the energy to stop this crazy shit. So it takes a foothold and it becomes permanent in education, like all this leftist crap. You know, I'm working my ass off while my kids are in school and some ponytailed freak is teaching my kids, uh, brainwashing them, teaching them about critical race theory and how drag queens are okay in the classroom. And, and let me get this straight. I am for the gays. I've been for gay marriage well before it became legal. I'm for the gays. I am a social liberal. Gay marriage, I'm for some gun control. I'm pro-choice. I'm, I'm a social liberal. But I'm not a leftist freak. Being for gays does not mean you think it's appropriate to have men, to have six-foot-four gorillas in bras and panties inside my kids' classrooms. If that happened when my kids were little, they'd be taken out of the school instantly. This has nothing to do with homophobia and everything to do with thinking that a six-foot-four-inch man dressed in a wig, bra, and panties should not be parading around inside grammar schools and exposing himself to kids. But all over the country, this has become a thing for some reason. But the funniest thing, of course, it always comes back to New York, is that Eric Adams, a black former cop, you can be damn sure that he hates drag queens in the classroom. You can be damn sure that he hates this stuff personally. He has to. Somehow, though, he got the memo and he was told to toe that line because he now claims that he thinks this madness is appropriate in New York City classrooms. He came out all for it and slammed anyone who said that drag queens in schools 
are disgusting groomers. I mean, what else is it? This is what he said. At a time when our LGBTQ plus communities are under increased attack across this country, which is bullshit, we must use our education system to educate. Now, I'm speaking in English. Eric Adams cannot form words correctly. Something's wrong with his mouth, his lips, his teeth. I don't know what the hell is going on there, but if you actually listen to him, he can't speak. So I'm, when I'm reading this, this is not how he sounds. He does not sound articulate. I'm going to continue. The goal is not only for our children to be academically smart, but also emotionally intelligent, Adams said in a statement. Drag storytellers and the libraries and schools that support them are advancing a love of diversity, personal expression, and literacy that is core to what our city embraces. Are you telling me that we need drag queens to be able to celebrate diversity? My kids' school have plenty of, uh, of, of minorities. Blacks, Indians, Asians, purples, greens, whatever the hell they are, they're all over the school. Nobody gives a shit. The kids are all friends. You don't need a drag queen to show an expression of diversity, my God. And literacy? Listen to this, what a New York City councilwoman named Gail Brewer said. Drag Queen Story Hour brings wonder to kids while building their self-esteem, and I'm proud to support them in my district with budget allocations. I stand firmly with my LGBTQ plus colleagues. We're spending money on this shit? New York, New York is starving. The taxes are the highest in the country. People lost their businesses because of the COVID lockdowns, the mandates. People are dying here. City officials have gotten slammed for allocating hundreds of thousands of taxpayer dollars to a nonprofit that puts together these controversial drag queen story hour events for kids. For the current fiscal year, the New York City Council set aside $80,000 for the group, tripling what it allocated last year, according to the New York Post. Just last month, Drag Story Hour New York City, which hold event, holds events for children as young as three years old, <clears throat> earned over $46,000 in government contracts. How sick is that? I mean, it, it, that's just in one month. A New York City councilman tweeted that, quote, New York City is spending taxpayer dollars to bring adult drag queens into elementary schools across the city to perform for small children. This is unacceptable and grotesque, which it is, and follows a deeply disturbing national pattern. She was immediately attacked by the AOC gang, you know, those freaks, those communists, those social democrats, they're communists, whatever the fuck they're called, socialists, they're communists. And they attacked this councilwoman because she described the behavior of bringing adult drag queens into New York City classrooms as grooming. Guess what? It is grooming, it is hypersexualization, and it's inappropriate for the classroom. You want to do it on your own time in an adult club? I don't care. I could give a fuck. Do it. Knock yourselves out. And I asked the Democrats, because it's not just the far left, it's Democrats who vote for this stuff. It's Democrats who vote for this sick stuff. Is there anything that you consider to be too lewd, too offensive for small children to see inside the classroom without the consent of parents. Drag queens apparently are, are not like such a problem. So what's, what's worse? Tell me what is the point 
What's the line that's drawn? Do we draw it at bestiality or no? I mean, does the left eventually, you know, that's coming, that sex with animals. I mean, why not? You know, that's coming and you don't believe me. Well, this Brett Blum, a former head of the Milwaukee LGBTQ plus, I thank God it's only just five or six letters. He's the head of a, of a Milwaukee LGBTQ plus foundation, which runs a drag queen story hour program. He was arrested on charges of possessing child porn. Color me shocked. A 44-page search warrant found Blom using the name Dom Master BB. He uploaded 27 videos and images containing child porn. Two of the files were uploaded at a Milwaukee County government building, the search warrant said. He was formerly the president of this foundation from 2017 to 2020. And this uh, foundation describes itself as mobilizing philanthropic resources by harnessing the pride, passion, and commitment of LGBTQ+. The foundation also runs a drag story hour program, an event that, quote, captures the imagination and play of the gender fluidity of childhood and gives kids glamorous, positive, and unabashedly queer role models. Not in my kid's school. It's not role models. A grown man, a hairy grown man, Wearing a bra and panties with a wig is not a role model. Do it in your own sick house, Democrats. Jesus. Quote, in spaces like this, kids are able to see people who defy rigid gender restrictions and imagine a world where, pe where people can present as they wish, where dress up is real. That's what a description says. Listen, I know there are sane young people that are listening to this podcast. And I know you've got parents that are telling you, don't listen to this. This guy's crazy. He's homophobic. He's this. Listen, look at your parents. Your parents are freaks. Don't listen to them if they're telling you that, that this is appropriate. If they're Democrats, ask them if they support this. Ask them. There's kids out there that are listening. Ask your parents, do you support this shit? You're not crazy. They are. This is what happens when you become a leftist. There's nothing that's too disgusting for you. It just never ends. It's a bottomless pit of disgustingness. Now, state officials from Alaska to Michigan, they've come under fire for throwing their support behind these drag-themed events for kids. Listen to this. The, the Michigan Attorney General said a drag queen for every school, and she dismisses concerns over you know, kids being exposed to drag queens. This is what she said. Drag queens make everything better. Drag queens are fun, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel reportedly said while speaking out against what she described as efforts to divide people. A drag queen for every school. I mean, again, if you think this is normal, frankly, go fuck yourself. Because you're not normal. This is an effort to divide by simply saying you don't want these people in grammar schools. Why is that, ask is that asking so much? Anastasia Higginbottom. She's a white Brooklynite. She's a children's book author. She wrote a book which is in the New York City Department of Education's uh, got approval and is now on the fifth grade reading list. The book is titled What You Don't Know, and it has lessons not on math or English or science, but on racism and queerness and liberation. And if you don't think these lessons are appropriate, the author says you 
cling to the oppressive, dying institutions of patriarchy and white supremacy. Half of New York students fell below benchmarks in reading. 40% fell below math benchmarks. The State Board of Regents just cancels its U.S. history exam while pushing down standards for other tests that it oversees. Why? Because the kids are too stupid. Because they're not learning. Public school enrollment in New York City is in a free fall. People are pulling their kids out because of shit like this. Who do you think's getting harmed the most by this insane leftist crap? It's minority kids whose parents can't afford to get them out of these shitty schools and into private schools. There were protests outside a gay bar in Texas, which hosted a drag your kids to pride event at which, among other things, kids tipped dancers in drag with dollar bills, just like they were in strip clubs. Leftists think this is harmless. Can't we allow our kids simply to grow up innocent? I mean, why do we have to force this stuff on them? Can't they just grow up and be left alone and to discover things on their own? Don't we as a society need to protect our kids from this? The president of the United States has two kids who are sex and drug addicts. One of his children claimed that she was hypersexualized because she took showers for too long with her father, the president of the United States. If the Democrats really think it's appropriate to make children have drag queens in the classrooms, then why isn't Joe Biden warning America about what happened to his kids? Why doesn't he use that as an example? Why is he hiding it? Why is he refusing to speak about it? He sends the Gestapo to the people who dared to possess Hunter Biden's laptop, which he dropped off and left at a computer repair shop and never picked it up. He sent the Gestapo to go after the person that found Ashley Biden's diary, which she left under a mattress at some rehab insane asylum that she was at. And here's where it leads. And I talked about the slippery slope before. An ethics professor from Norway has claimed that pedophilia should be classed as an innate sexuality and taught in schools. Ole Martin Moen from Oslo Metropolitan University is calling for the destigmatization, destigmatization, excuse me, of pedophiles, claiming that the mental state of finding children sexually attractive is very common. Now, this is a gay man, naturally who identifies as queer, whatever that means, I don't really know, I'm sorry, also claims that a significant percentage of high school students have an innate pedophilic sexual identity, something he equates with those who identify as LGBTQ+. So I guess P is going to be the next letter, LGBTQP+, pedophile. Many of us have been pedophiles at one point, he argued, adding that when you're 11, it's not unlikely that you were sexually attracted to pre- pubescent children. Listen to me. Speak for yourself, you freak. I wasn't attracted to, to, to prepubescent children when I was 11 years old. You're a freak. Somebody should take you out in the back and, and I don't know, drown you, put a bullet in you, something. My God. He also suggests that to prevent harm to future children, children, we would be well advised to start teaching high school students not just what to do in case they are victims of sexual abuse, but what also to do in case they themselves are pedophiles. A certain percentage of high school students either are or will become pedophiles. Maybe the certain percentage is like one-tenth of one-thousandth of one percent. I don't know. But he says there's not any advice on how to handle their sexuality. Listen, pedophilia is not exactly like a major thing in society. Why does the left, why are they trying so hard 
to make it something. Kids have come out and said that the reason why uh, they asked for gender-changing surgery when they were kids is because it was all over the Internet. They started getting the, uh, these ideas put in their heads. Remember when we were little and our parents would drop us off at the library where an old librarian would, would read the stories to us during story time? We were all told to get our mats. They were like these little square pieces of carpet <clears throat> and told to sit down in front of her and she read us a story. Was that so bad? Was it really so bad that we now need drag queens to do it? Listen, move out of the blue states. Get away from liberals. They're sick. They're demented people. Do not engage them. Just separate from them. Just separate, separate yourself from them. This is the shit that they believe in. And speaking of lunatics, let's go to the Middle East. I'm going to briefly touch upon this. The Middle East and gays. In the Middle East, you get killed for being gay. Most Muslim countries have laws against being gay. And many Muslim countries punish gays with death. And that's, that's official. That's official stuff. Plenty of gays are rounded up and lynched or thrown off buildings in Middle Eastern countries without being charged at all criminally. It's just what they do. That's standard fare in Muslim countries. Gays are hanged by their necks from cranes in Iran. They're stoned to death in Yemen. You can't be openly gay in the Middle East without putting your life in danger. And naturally, the only place in the Middle East where it's safe to be gay is in Israel. The only democracy in the Middle East, which is surrounded by crazed savages on all sides. 170,000 people recently marched in the Tel Aviv Gay Pride Parade. And gays have had rights and freedoms in Israel for decades. This isn't a recent phenomenon. Israel has always been gay-friendly, and the Muslim world has always been overtly, horrifically anti-gay. And authorities in Saudi Arabia if you can believe, have been seizing rainbow-colored toys and children's clothing, which they claim encourage homosexuality. That's what their state TV says. The Commerce Ministry officials have been removing a range of items from shops in the capital in Riyadh. They include hair clips, uh, T-shirts, hats, pencil cases, anything with a rainbow on it. One official said the items contradict the Islamic faith and public morals and promote homosexual uh, colors targeting the younger generation. You cannot be gay in these countries and survive. You can't. You're openly gay, you're dead. Police forces in Tunisia, Egypt, and Lebanon are increasingly relying on digital tools to identify and entrap and prosecute LGBTQ P plus people, thus intensifying an anti-queer surveillance is what they're doing. They use uh, certain apps, pictures that are deemed effeminate, and even innocuous conversations, they get on your WhatsApp and they see what you're talking about. They check your apps, see what you're doing. And if you seem like you're gay, well, you're dead or you're getting arrested in these Muslim countries. Police in Egypt use sting operations to entrap people with dating apps. Authorities in Tunisia and Lebanon, they tack on charges after searching detainees' phones for other crimes. You're gay? Well, you're going to do some more time in jail. In order to survive, queer people are being forced to erase and hide themselves from the internet. Armed groups in Iraq, including the police and uh, one of the country's most powerful militias, they attack LGBTQ plus people with impunity. This is all out there. This isn't hidden. Cases include abductions, torture, rape, and murder. While LGBT people live in fear for their lives, civil uh, rights groups have said. 
And as I said, the government doesn't even prosecute the attackers. Naturally, uh, gays and drag queens who live in Palestine, despite living in fear of being gay, they manage to hate Jews in Israel more than the very people who would toss them off buildings. And that's, that's typical for Palestinians. I mean, if you can be an idiot, you can be a Palestinian. I mean, the dumbest you can possibly be, move to Palestine and you, are, you will become dumber if it's possible. Uh, there was a concert that was supposed to take place in Ramallah, that's in the West Bank in Palestine, over the weekend for the LGBTQ plus community. And it was called off naturally following threats from Palestinian activists. East Jerusalem singer-songwriter Bashar Murad was supposed to perform at this concert, which was scheduled to be held on Friday night. In a 2021 interview with the New Arab News website, he said, Growing up, I struggled because I'm Palestinian, and then I struggled because I'm gay. In a video that was posted on social media, a group of activists were seen arriving at the center where the concert was scheduled to take place, and the leader of the group is the son of a prominent Hamas preacher, Hamas is the elected government of the Palestinian people, the son of this prominent Hamas preacher who's famous for saying uh, his prophecy that Israel will cease to exist in 2022. Sorry, you're wrong. But this, this son uh, made a video, and in it he's telling people at the center, there's a guy called Bashar Murad who's supposed to hold a party here today. Bashar Murad is gay. This person is banned from holding a concert. He does not rep- represent any of us or our free people, we came here to advise you in a respectful manner. We are talking to you in a nice way. Don't test our patience. Anyone who dares to harm our religion will be crossing a red line. Basically, what he's saying is that if this concert takes place, we'll kill everybody. And that's the government of the Palestinians. That's what they elected, that their polls are out, that this is the most popular government in Palestine. Naturally, there's a civil war going on because these people are complete fucking animals. They can't even get along with themselves. But Hamas is the popular leadership. Why? Because they hate Jews and Israel the most and are willing to commit the most violence. And that's what the people in Palestine want. But this this Bashar Murad, he knows that they're going to kill him in Palestine. Palestinian Authority police spokesperson, now this is the other government, he said that these activities are harmful to the values and ideals of Palestinian society. He accused unnamed dubious parties of working to create discord and harm civic peace in Palestinian society with all this gay stuff. What he's referring to is Israel. Naturally, it's Israel's fault. It's the Jews' fault that there are some Palestinians that are gay. Anyway, but it's typical of the idiocy and savagery of the Palestinians. This Bashar Murad, who would have been murdered by Palestinians had he shown up, to his own concert on Friday night or arrested or beaten to death. Whoever got their hands on him first, they would have done whatever. If you go to his Twitter account, it's filled with anti-Israel insanity. And he blames Israel for daring to be the only Middle Eastern country with rights for gays. So this is a gay role model. This is like a, a, a gay guy who's out there for the rights of gays, and he's blasting Israel for having gay rights. The most vicious comments for Israel but supporting Palestine, a place that literally wants to tear him to pieces. This is the stupidity of the Palestinian people. This is the stupidity of the far-left LGBTQ plus crowd that supports this Muslim terror government, governments, in Palestine and demonizes Israel, the only place in the Middle East which won't murder them on sight. This is the madness 
of the gays that support the Palestinian terrorists and hate Israel. None of it makes any sense, but that's just me. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I'm sorry for the choking. As I said, the COVID's not gone yet. The COVID is real. You can find me on Spotify. You can find me on Apple Podcasts. You can give me a rating. Tell me how great I am. Five stars, please. You can write to me at beyondthelegallimit.com. And uh, thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with a new podcast. Thank you.